Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential television. I'd say I've had what could maybe be called a sex addiction. What's the best thing that's happened to you since you've made money? Mine are so weird. I love pizza. Still, when I order a pizza, I'm like, yeah, yeah, put that on there too. Yeah, let's get us throw a second one on. And I hang up the phone. I'm like, oh my God. I can order any pizza I want. I have a fridge in my garage that has a million drinks in it. That makes me feel like a billionaire. That was Dak Shepard you were just listening to. He was talking to me, Dr. Phil, and you're listening to Fill in the Blanks. We'll get to Dax in just a second, but if you're listening for the first time, let me tell you about Fill in the Blanks. This is a podcast that's totally different than the Dr. Phil show in that I'm not solving problems. This is me talking to interesting people. I think you're going to find them interesting too. It's going to include ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. And sometimes I'm going to be my own guest to tell you very specific things that you might be interested in knowing. I'm going to interview some couples as well, not just individuals. This is not Dr. Phil rerun as a podcast. Let me tell you, Dax Shepard is a good example because this this guy is really interesting. He's, he's married to Kristen Bell, which you may or may not know. I mean, a great, interesting couple, both comedic actors, both very successful. And uh, I'm here with Laferne Cusack, who is my producer for this. What do you think of Dak? He is so smart. And I really enjoyed listening to how you guys connected. You both gearheads, you both crashed motorcycles, and you both had alcoholic fathers. Yeah, I think he and I were both surprised. But Listen, this is a guy that has paid his dues. He started out with the Groundlings Theater here in L.A., which is the improv, where you really get in front of an audience and kind of get your chops. He did Punked with Ashton Kutcher, and he's the kind of guy that can pull that off. He did six seasons on NBC's smash hit Parenthood. Everything he touches turns to gold. His most recent movie was Chips. You remember the, yeah. the series Chips? I loved it. Yeah, the movie is not the series Chips. This was very edgy. He's been in The Judge went in Rome, baby mama. He's a writer. He's a director. He's a voiceover artist. And by the way, he has one of the biggest podcasts in all of podcasts called The Armchair Expert. And this year, coming up in just a few weeks, they're launching a new ABC sitcom called Bless This Mess. I've seen the promos for it, and it's really funny. I don't think he knows how to not be funny. So I, I had a great time talking to him. So anyway, enough talking about him. Let's talk to him. And I'm going to do that in less than six. 60 seconds. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So how are you? I'm fantastic. How yeah. are you? I know a lot about you from talking to Jay and hearing all about you, but I've not met you before. Likewise. like You I, know I'm a huge fan, right? I don't know that I believe that, but oh, it's flattering you, for you to you say. You saw a picture of me with a chips hat on, right? Well, that's true. Now, come on. So that's before I was ever going to talk to you. So you can't call bullshit on me because <laughs> I had the hat on. <laughs> that's right. You weren't pandering because you that's didn't right. even know about me yet. I had no idea you were going to see that picture. One of my pic. stunt guys, Steve DeCastro, he saw that and was... Beyond happy. Oh, but you know a lot of my friends. Do you know DeCastro? Yeah, do I know DeCastro? Oh, didn't you have some kind of fiasco on a motorcycle with him? <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah, yeah what happened? <laughs> All right, I got to tell you the story. So I would love for this to be like some big macho story, but mm. we go to the track out. LCR. Yeah, LRC. Where you jump around and all, because I used to run motocross. Uh-huh. In Texas. And, yeah. Do you notice that I'm play, I'm pandering to you? I, I like that. Okay. I did it in Texas and, and Kansas and Missouri. I raced a lot. Never won a race mm-hmm. because I couldn't win because I weighed like 230, 240. And then these jockeys are on the same motorcycle and they yeah. just. So DeCastro's over here and I'm on this Yamaha 450, I think it was. I'm shooting something for James Corden because they said, we're going to do this series of hidden talents of celebrities. So things you don't know. And so they thought it would be funny because I'm always in a suit to show that when I come home, I'm actually on a motorcycle and do a wheelie up the driveway. Yes. I'm doing a power wheelie. So you got to keep the power on to stay up, as you know. Yeah. And sometime between when I left that last time it came back, they put this damn palm tree right here next to the house. Oh, they planted one. And I come down and the palm tree <laughs> is right there. And you know what they teach you? Get away from the machine. So I bail off the machine, flip over, do a complete flip and land on my head and back. I blew up this shoulder. Uh-huh. Had to have three surgeries on it at oh, one time. Oh, my gosh. Broke six ribs. Oh, and you didn't even probably have usable footage of you looking cool. Of course not. Right. They've so just a total every, loss across the They've already packed everything up. So I think this is terrible. I'm laying there. I'm like. Ribs and ribs hurt. <laughs> yeah, but I don't realize because I'm kind of in shock. Steve says, well, let's go in the house and look at the footage we did get. So we go <laughs> in. We got on a big screen. And I'm sitting there watching this. And then I go to get up. And go, holy shit. Yeah. So I went to the doctor and he does a an x-ray and CAT scan and said, you're going to the hospital. And I spent a week. A week. I, my my lungs were bleeding. Oh, I my had, goodness. You like punctured your lungs with yeah. the ribs? And then I had to go back. Can you, tell, can you reveal your age at the time of the accident? I was uh, 12. Okay. <laughs> you're 12 years old. This was last year. So you see this over here? Yeah. You want to buy it? <laughs> Are you done with two wheels? Uh, well, Robin took the keys and she won't let me have them. I think my wife has a similar game plan. She's going to wait till I eat shit in epic fashion and then get some leverage. Yeah. Well, DeCastro, who, by the way, is, I just want to say for the record, a very safe stunt coordinator. Uh, we did all of chips with a single injury and it was just stitches on a chin, which is epic for a, a movie with that many stunts. 
So he is a very safe guy. But there was a scene in Chips on the big police bike where I come up and do a big front endo on it and then land in the box and then pull away. Well, I can do a front endo on a dirt bike or my light motorcycle, but I've never done it on a police motorcycle. That's 800 pounds with the bags and all the stuff. And so we had hired a dude who had set a world record for the longest stoppy. We're like, oh, we'll get him to do it. And then I'll act like, but there was just, there was no way to land it and then see me pull out. So I'm like, I got to do it. And DeCastro goes, yeah, just do it. And I go, well, I've never done it. And he goes, you can do it. Just do it. And I'm like, well, it's just a big, it's a big bike. And there's a hundred people watching. He goes, oh, you, you got this. You got this. You, you can do this. And I went screaming at it, grabbed the front brake. ABS came on, just crashed sideways in front of a hundred people. S- you know, studio people are like, that's the, also the director. This is a terrible idea. Oh yeah, you gotta I did it ABS three off. times. I crashed twice in front of everyone. And then I got it on the third time. And then that's what oh, ended geez. up in the movie. And then you also know Aaron, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's your fitness guru? Yes. Yeah. I've not ever worked out with him, but I understand he's the best of the best. Yeah. He is a punisher. He is, right? Yeah. He's he's an emasculator. Yeah. And he he can do a (laughs) plank for five minutes while he's talking to you Uh off to the side. (laughs) And he'll reach over and hand you something during a five-minute plank Uh (laughs) and then put it back down. It's ridiculous. So, But that's all. um, I think as I learned those things about you, that you both went to the motocross track and that you were training with Aaron, those were surprise revelations for me. Really? Yes. What did you think? I was like, grandpa or something? You're ubiquitous. So, of course, I know who you are. You are and I know what you I think I know what you do. I'd seen you on Oprah. I knew you were a psychologist. So then to find out, yeah, that you train and ride motocross, that's a little off brand. Yeah, I guess we could call it. I'm a total gearhead. That's why I pull this in here. It's a there's a crazy story behind this, right? That Jay told me. This car was stolen. You have a 67 Lincoln. I do, yes. Right. In fact, you named one of your children. That's right. My daughter after your, named after, after your car. car. Yeah, yeah. She People are like, oh, after Abraham Lincoln? Uh, no. no. Lincoln, Nebraska? So her name, it's your daughter, right? Yes. So her name is a 67? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. That's a great car, by the way. I love it. I've had that car now for 23 years. Oh, wow. It was the most impractical car for a struggling actor, but I just, I couldn't, I had to have something I liked. And I had it forever and it drove terribly because it had the old brakes and the old engine, everything. And then I spent a fortune putting like a huge engine, brakes, suspension, all that. Oh, so now yeah. it's fun as hell to drive. Yeah. Well, that's what I did with this. And it came about awkwardly, but I bought this through an auction over the phone. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's usually the best way to buy yeah, a car. Yeah. Uh, well, they held, it. They held a flip phone up. No, I had somebody to look at. It. I bought it and it looked good on camera and I got it. And it was it was okay, but it wasn't great. So I call my buddy who's got a shop in Burbank and he says, look, I'll just, this was Sunday. He said, I'll send a truck to pick it up now. That way I'll have it first thing Monday morning. I'll get it back to you in no time. 20 minutes after it got to his shop, it was stolen. Really? You think the tow truck driver might have been in on it? Uh, Yeah. yeah. 11 months, they arrest the kingpin of this car theft ring in a sting. They take him to Burbank. He says, I want to make a deal. And they said, well, we're looking for Dr. Phil's 57 Chevy. (laughs) He said, I don't have it. They said, well, you're going in, asshole. So (laughs) two and a half hours later, his lawyer pulls up in front of the police station with this on a trailer. No way. 
But I don't know if he had it or he put the word out, whoever's got it. That's like out of a movie. And it was trashed. It was. They had tried to pick it up with a forklift from the uh, side, came in too high and knocked two holes in it. Oh. They had let it roll down a ramp, crushed the fins on the back. Oh, my gosh. And then they dusted it for prints. Everything. And then I thought, you know, it's the most expensive words in English language, right? Might as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll change the engine. Uh-huh. And so I put a 2016 Corvette engine in it, uh-huh. chipped up. It's running about 650 horsepower. Uh-huh. And I put uh, Flowmaster uh, L48 headers on it. Uh-huh. And then they said, well, you need to change the differential and you need sure, to change sure, this. Sure. So this is a 2016 1957 <laughs> Chevy. But it drives like a new car. Yes. I have a 1994 Buick Roadmaster station wagon, wood grain. That is exactly what you just described. It has a 2017 LSA motor, the supercharged vet engine, huge brakes, electric transmission, had to get new gauges. So it talked to all that. Yeah. So it is virtually a Cadillac CTSV, but in a Roadmaster body. You used to drag race, right? Mm Mm-hmm. What'd you run? I've done a bunch of different racing, but yeah, in high school, I drag raced. What'd I you had run a then? Mustang GT. Yeah. Back then, a 12.9 was flying. Now you can get like a Ford Focus. I think that'll yeah. probably do 12.9. Yeah. I was driving to Vegas about three months ago. I was shooting this TV show, The Ranch, and it, and it filmed on Friday nights in front of a live audience. So I got out of there at 11 o'clock at night. I had an off-road race in Laughlin, Nevada the next morning. So I just drove straight to Laughlin when I got off work. There was a period where I was on the 15 and I was in a pack of like six cars and we were going 100 100 miles an hour, 100, 200, 300. The pack of cars I was in was a Chrysler minivan, (laughs) a Ford Focus, and then some other car. And I just thought, look how far we've come. In the 80s, when I started driving yeah. cars, if you were doing 100 in a Dodge Caravan, you had better be wearing a helmet and fire suit. Like yeah, it, absolutely. It, it, you would have been maxed out and the thing would have been yeah. all over the road. But yeah, these just normal, boring passenger cars now do 110 and they handle well and the brakes are... What well, year did you graduate high school? 93. Oh, geez. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, this happens to me all the time, too. Most of my yeah. guests are a lot younger than yeah, me. Yeah, I graduated in 68. Okay, so you're one year older than my mother. Were you born in 50? 50. Okay, my mother's 51. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, you look as beautiful as her. Yeah, thank (laughs) you. I'm sure. Uh, I don't know how people don't do these things because that was just the most fun I've ever had. But are you at all interested in why you were drawn to it? Because I've done a lot of introspection on why for me. What do you think? I have a huge male complex. My dad wasn't around. So I was getting my male approval from my buddies. So I had to be crazier. I had to be faster. I had to do all these things to get all that male approval. And it just set me on a course. Now, I genuinely love it, but I'm aware of that it stems from something. All this hyper-masculinity I'm attracted to. So like I walk through this garage and I'm like, yep, this is my shit. This This is me. But for me, I think it's also uh, compounded with a lot of stepdads, a lot of chaos. When I got in a car, I was like, oh, I can control this thing. I'm in charge of this thing. When I go like this, it does the same thing every time. When I hit the brake, I like having something that is predictable and I can control. That's a very nice feeling for me. Are you curious at all why you like it? No, when you say that, I mean, that's pretty insightful, actually, because I grew up with an alcoholic father. 
Me too. An absent alcoholic father. And I mean, he just wasn't there a lot because he was a bad drunk. Drinking takes time. And, yeah. <laughs> and we, you know, we were really, really poor. When I was 14, I was homeless and I was living on the streets in Kansas City. Not for a long period of time, but it seemed like a long period of time. And what I saw at the time, to me, when I got into a, a powerful car and you would feel that rumble mm-hmm. beneath you and you could control that. I mean, it was a feeling of power. Yeah. And it's intoxicating. When, when you slam those gears, mm-hmm. I mean, that was a, a sense of control that I had in only one other place in my life. There were two things that I felt in control and everywhere else I was a passenger. Yeah. And the other thing was athletics. And if it hadn't been for athletics, I'd have never graduated high school. But what did you play? Football. Uh-huh. And yeah, another thing you can physically take charge. Yeah, right? exactly. And at that point, it didn't matter because, you know, I'd go to school and everybody would have like designer shirt and the penny loafer shoes or whatever was in style at the time. And I'd wear whatever I could find. But when you stepped onto that field, they didn't care. It was how fast you could run, how high you could jump, and how many people you could knock on their ass. It didn't care. That was my currency. Yes. Well, and I, too, have this. It's very confusing for me now because I have money. But I have this crazy sense of class warfare, too. Like, I grew up broke. I hate rich people. I hate entitlement. To your point. Yeah, my Mustang was fourteen hundred bucks, but I rebuilt the engine, and it's it's a meritocracy now. There's no yeah. advantage. It doesn't matter what your dad did for a living. Yeah. Those things that were equalizers appealed to me a lot. Do you hate rich people, or do you hate people that didn't earn what they have? There's a difference. Well, by the way, I've had to unpack all this because. I now I have money and I'm friends with a lot of people with money and they're not what I thought they were. (laughs) So I recognize, I know exactly what it was around them. I felt less than like I would have said 10 years ago, Oh, they think they're better than me, but I now know they don't even, they're not even thinking about me. I feel less than around those people. So I'll still, I got money. I can go to any restaurant. And if the waiter talks to me in a certain way, I'll feel like, Oh, I don't belong here. And then I go on the attack. Like, who the fuck? This guy acts like he owns a place where the heat's here. Like, I get aggressive and I'm on that offense. But then I stop and I go, I feel less than. I feel like I don't belong here. It's all very tricky stuff. Well, you know what I figured out? I'll tell you what I figured out about that. And this has stuck with me. When I was like 12, that's when I started my career in psychology at 12 years old, actually. Mm -hmm. Because something happened to me on one day. That for the rest of my life, I was focused on why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. From that day forward, all my buddies were making model cars. You'll buy them for $5, get the glue, make them. You'd get like black thread and make plug wires Uh and stuff and all that. And I was reading books about why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. That's fascinated me my entire life. Yeah, I can remember the day like it was yesterday. But again, were you... Were you hoping to learn what motivated people in an attempt to maybe predict other people's behavior because it was fucking nuts around you? No, I was trying to get out of feeling like a second class citizen. Uh-huh. I, and I, I can tell you real quickly what happened. Yeah, what was it? I was on a football team and we really had 
the best equipment, the best uniforms, the best everything you could imagine. And we were really good. And we had a game rain out. And the Salvation Army had a team. And they called our coach and said, we know you had a game rain out. Can we come Monday and have a scrimmage game with you guys? And he said, yeah, sure. So we show up, game uniforms on Monday. They pull up in these pickup trucks at the curb. And it looked like the grapes of wrath. I mean, they're, uh-huh, they're right. pouring out of these pickups. <laughs> and the kid that lined up across from me had on a button-down shirt, and he had the number four in masking tape on his shirt. Uh-huh. And he had on loafers for football shoes, and he had rolled his jeans up to look like football pants. And we're little shit. We're in the huddle snickering like, oh, come on, why didn't he put it on a magic marker? That's going to come off. Yeah, yeah. He didn't have it on a magic marker because that was his shirt. Right. That wasn't the shirt he wore that day. He had to wear that to school the next day. Sure. That's why he had that on there. None of their helmets matched. They didn't have equipment. They had nothing. And we didn't kick off because it was a scrimmage. We just snapped the ball. And that number four kid is the one that lined up across from me. And he hit me so hard, it still hurts when it rains. <laughs> I bet they beat us 50 to nothing. Really? I walked to the car. My dad was there that day. And I got in the car and said, what the hell happened? And he said, well, you just got your ass handed to you, boy. <laughs> I said, well, I was looking for something a little more in-depth than that. Yeah, more, more profound. And he said, they just wanted it more than you. Those boys are hungry. Yeah. And and that moment, I thought, if they can do that much with so little, how much should I be able to do with the opportunities I've got? Yeah. And at that moment, I started getting focused on it. And I realized everybody has a personal truth, what we really believe about ourselves when nobody's listening, nobody's looking. And I realized you go to school every day and you compare your personal truth with their social mask. Yeah. That's what you're talking about, rich people. Yeah. We know what we really think about ourselves. But we compare that to the front they're putting on. Oh, it's not unlike Instagram, Twitter. You're seeing a curated image of somebody. Yeah. yeah. Oprah told me one time we were sitting there watching somebody, a bunch of people on the red carpet. She's probably the most famous woman in the world, right? Sure. And all these glams were going up. And she said, I never feel like they look. Yeah. And I yeah. thought, coming from Oprah, yeah, I never feel like they look. Yeah. And I thought, Wow. Yeah. Because you you have your own personal truth and you compare that to other people's image. That's what interests me the very most. That is the topic of my podcast virtually. Almost every episode is, okay, you're rich, you're famous. You did it. Did it cure everything? Do you look in the mirror and see John Wayne? Has it alleviated all the things that one has to do daily to get a reprieve from the beating that is our brain. And it doesn't. Sadly, it doesn't. Money's nice. It makes your life easier in ways, for sure. I'm grateful for it. I don't want to go back to having none. But it didn't give me self-esteem. My fantasy, my illusion of what a, a rich person felt like, I came to find out it didn't do anything internally, which no. was a big disappointment. For me. Yeah. What did you think it was going to do? Well, I literally growing up, I thought, oh, you win the lottery and then you're retired. Like there's no now it's just neutral. You do whatever thing you enjoy. If that's watching TV eight hours a day, fine. If it's taking motorcycles, fine. And I have found the hard way that things that make me feel good aren't the things that are fun or that are easy. They are exercise makes me feel good, you know, buys me at least five hours. 
being of service to someone I don't want to be of service to helps my self-esteem. You know, caring for my children boosts my self-esteem. The things I hit the, the pillow at night and go through when I'm writing my narrative self, they're not, oh, yeah, you rode the couch for eight hours. Yeah. Fuck, yeah, you're doing it. Yeah. That's just not how, for me, that's not how it works, sadly. It's the productivity and the doing things generally I don't want to do that give me true self-esteem. Yeah. What's the best thing that's happened to you since you've made money? Mine are so weird. They're so poor kid things. So I love pizza. There were 10 years in L.A. where I just couldn't afford to order pizza. And still, I've now been making a good living for 15 years. Still, when I order a pizza, I'm like, yeah, put, yeah, put that on there, too. Yeah, let's get a, throw a second one on. And I hang up the phone. I'm like, oh, my God, I can order any pizza I want. I can. Another thing is like, I'll get gas. I don't even look at the price of gas. I'm like, I got to fill the tank. I don't, that feels amazing to me. Going to the gas station was so stressful for 10 years and it's not now. That's awesome. I have a fridge in my garage that has a million drinks in it. That makes me feel like a billionaire. It's not the other things that maybe make other people feel that way, but it's these weird little things that I used to obsess over and just eating mostly, going to restaurants I want to eat at. That feels great. What's your currency? Taking aside, being able to order a pizza with five toppings. What's the currency that keeps you going? What's the currency? Be I mean, more, you don't have to work. I mean, come on, you could take a year off. I could, yeah. And and you don't. So you're working when you don't have to. For sure. What's the currency? Well, I'm obsessed. I have a huge fear of economic insecurity. I can't shake it. I've made strides. Let's say I was a 10. Now I'm only a six. But my wife, she just doesn't have that. She doesn't have that fear. I have it. So I obsess nonstop about our money. I obsess about your money. I obsess about everybody's money. Within 10 minutes of talking to someone, I'm trying to walk away with some guess at what they're making a year. And that's cuckoo-ness. But I have it. I, and well, of course, it's because, in this town, you can look it up in Forbes. Yeah, yeah. They put out the list. Yes, which that can I be hate done. Because that's like putting a big target on your chest. Yes. But I'm aware of it. And I, again, I'm striving to not feel this way. But I'm always thinking, I can't end up in a situation where I have to do something I don't want to do for money. Not because, look, I've done a million things I didn't want to do for money. But I have an opportunity to not have to do that again. And I feel the weight of making sure that that given this opportunity that I don't screw that up. Also, my wife doesn't care. So it's also on me to make sure that we all get through this with some safety at the end. But again, it is an unhealthy thing that I spend the amount of time I spend thinking about money that I could just be generating money because I'm creative and I like doing things that end up making me money, it'd be time better spent. But I am inching towards it. I'm feeling less of the pessimist. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a recovering alcoholic, 14 years. I do know. One of the things I loved about drinking is four drinks and I'm an optimist. Shit is going to work out. I'm going to book that audition. I will own that car. I will have sex with that girl. All these things, the sky is, you know, I feel optimistic and that's such a relief. That's not my biochemistry to feel. Are you pessimistic now? Just like when you were riding over here today, were you pessimistic? I wasn't. What were you thinking? Uh, a couple things. Thank God I rode the motorcycle because there was a lot of traffic. <laughs> oh, I got to get my phone out at some point and put it on the, the little phone holder. 
I'm going to take my glove off for that. I refuse to stop and do this. So, oh, I know a nice stretch. I'll be able to get all that done. <laughs> so there was a stretch on sunset. I'm pulling my glove off with my hand and I'm putting that in there. And then I'm opening up my, my nav and then getting the glove back on. And it happened. I like to make little stupid challenges for myself nonstop. I was thinking about that. And I think that's all I was thinking about, which is an amazing accomplishment for me. Because I was just dry. I was just riding here. I wasn't thinking about whether this would go good or bad. I wasn't thinking about later in the day. Do you have a big worry that haunts you besides all of a sudden you'll be back to where you were destitute? Penniless. Yeah. Weirdly, I don't have any fears about my kids, which I think is a really common fear to have. That's one of the few things I have this innate optimism about. Even from, like my wife said to me when we decided to have a kid, well, you should go get your sperm count checked. I'm like, why would I get my sperm count checked? She's like, because you've had sex with a lot of people and never had a scare. And I'm like, solid point, but I might be great at the pullout method. I might be that good. It'd be a really good time. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I think you should get checked. And I said, I'm not gonna. Like, I know that this is gonna work. She got pregnant right when we started. And just the whole, we go to those checkups. You know, those are scary checkups. Like, oh, let's go see if there's a genetic abnormality. Let's yeah. go see. Let's do this ultrasound, see if the cranium's correct. All these things generally elicit some anxiety in parents. And I was like, yeah, let's go look at her cranium. I know it's going to be good. I just, I just felt, it's very weird. It's very out of character for me. But I just felt great about it the whole time. And even since they've been here, I'm like, yeah, they're going to be good. I know it. But you asked me what I'm afraid of. And generally the economic thing, uh, that, that's a big one. The fears that I just circle are status. I have to combat that. Where's my rank in this group? You know, I'm a gorilla. Where am I compared to you? That I have to police nonstop. That you'll think I'm stupid. I've got to prove that to you really quick. No matter where you are. Doesn't matter. I could be talking to a functionally disabled person thinking, I got to prove to this person I'm smart. You graduated magna cum laude. You see Not what? enough. Do you carry no. that? You, you, can just, you can just pull it on your shirt and say, right, yeah, I should have a tattooed on my arm. Uh, I try not to be that obnoxious about it. As much as I care about you thinking I'm smart, I don't I don't think I ever say I was magna cum laude. Well, I said it for you. So now, you Maybe it was like say, Inception. I planted a seed. this interview. <laughs> but yeah, I have to. And what's interesting is, I don't know how familiar you are with 12-step programs. Very. Very. So the fourth step is, for me, the, the one that makes that program. That's the meat of that program. So you make a fearless and moral inventory, right? You, you make a list of all these people. It's a brilliantly constructed step as well because it tricks you into doing this work. So first is just list all these people you have resentments against. Could be your second grade teacher who kicked you out, blah, blah, blah. Girlfriend who cheated on you, da, da, da. You get 30 people and then that's one column. And the next column is, well, what are you mad at them about? So Mark, I'm mad. He's always trying to get me fired, right? Okay, that's a reason to hate somebody. He's always telling the boss if I'm late or if I didn't turn some. What does that threaten? Next column. Well, that threatens my financial security. Now, what can you do about that? Well, if I'm not late, Mark doesn't have anything to tell the boss. If I turn my shit in on time, there's nothing for Mark to turn in. So that's my role in it. Now, the magic of that step is after you list 40 people you have resentments against, you will find in that third column, what does it threaten? 
you have the same three fears. We all have two or three or four fears that are the engine driving us. And it's the source of all of our resentments, all of our disagreements, people we hate. If you have a party at your house and everyone leaves and you and your wife are talking, the wife says, oh, that Becky was a bitch. I'm like, really? I thought she was nice. You didn't see she was like showing off her ring and blah, 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 whatever her thing is. I'm like, no, I didn't notice it. I Dale was an asshole. That guy, you see how much attention he was trying to get? He was bragging, blah, blah. All you're learning about her and I is that I want a lot of attention and I see it in Dale and I hate that about myself and I hate it in Dale. She hates what, you know, and then I do all that to compensate for these three things. It's maddening how simple it is. There's an old saying, there's something about that guy I can't stand about me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like that. There's something about that guy I can't stand about me. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, you can only see in other people what you have in yourself or you don't have a receptor for it. Yeah. You can't see arrogance if you don't have it. Well, that is what is, in my opinion, so I know one of your commitments is, or at least as I understand it, is is learning to be honest with yourself, which is much harder than people really give it credit for. It's not even that they're trying to be deceptive with themselves. Your biochemistry is such that it is telling you real things. So- I know one time when this I'm going to get really intimate here. One time, I'd say I've I've had what could maybe be called a sex addiction at some point in my life. Not there, one that I had to seek treatment for, but, but there were worse addictions. There are worse addictions, yes. I'm just saying. Yes, yes. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Up till then, I would just said, oh, I have sex with a lot of people. I like to do it. It's healthy. Who cares? I'm not getting diseases. I'm single, whatever. The moment that I thought, ooh, this deserves exploration is I had a girlfriend. She was away. We got in a fight over the phone. I hung up the phone. I was driving in the car and I immediately got horny. Now, horny, that is a biochemical feeling. I'm getting a serotonin dump, whatever I'm getting. That's a physiological thing, horniness. So I'm just feeling authentically horny. And I think, hmm, I'm going to text this girl I know. And I text that girl. And there was a delay. And then I just had this moment of clarity. I was like, that's suspicious. I just felt disempowered by my girlfriend. And immediately I got horny. Could my brain be like taking care of me? Like, oh, here's a way to make you not feel bad and powerless. You can feel powerful and attractive and all these things. But but that biochemical thing that happened, the, the physiological thing, how would I not interpret that as real horniness? It was real horniness. It's just my brain made me horny to, so I didn't have to feel that other thing. That's so complex. Well, 
Not really. <laughs> well, okay, yes, yes, yeah. No, but think about it. For every thought you have, there's a physiological correlate. Mm-hmm. You, there's no thought that you have that there's not some hydraulic in your body that goes along Generating with it, Generating right? it, basically. I mean, like, think about a dill pickle. Think about biting into a dill pickle and crushing it. You feel it crunch. You feel the vinegar explode in your mouth. What happens? You start salivating, right? Right. For every thought, there's something like that that happens. Yes. So if you have a thought about someone that you're attracted to or you've had a good experience with or whatever, then your body's going to respond. Yeah. And you only have one arousal system. It's the same arousal system if you're excited at a football game or if you hear a noise behind you in the alley. Uh You only have one arousal system. It's just how you label it. You assign the meaning to it. Yes. It's but you only have one system. It's one arousal system. You it's this sexual arousal, this is fear arousal, this is excitement arousal, this is what it you yeah, just the adrenal you just, kind yeah, of you just point it whatever direction your mind wants to take it. Yeah. But those things can be really misleading. Like someone oh, who's yeah. using food to regulate their emotions. Yeah. They might have something happen at work or with a boyfriend or girlfriend, and they might feel genuinely starving. Yeah. As a response to that. Well, don't you believe yourself? Generally, when you tell yourself yeah, something, uh, of course, you believe yourself. Yes. And if you don't test that against reality, you have no way of knowing whether you're telling yourself the truth or not. And in fact, I would argue you need a system. I think humans and on their own are, are just so highly fallible that you need a system. When you see like big, profound change in human beings, it's generally the person didn't wake up and go, I'm going to be a different person. Do you ever test your thoughts? Maybe. How? Give me an example. Well, like whether it's rational or irrational. I don't know. Maybe. Well, like there are like four criteria for if it's rational or not. Is it true? Right. Based on verifiable fact. Uh huh. Uh, is it in your best interest? Does it protect and prolong your life? Does it get you closer to what you really want? Mm. Those are four criteria. And if it doesn't pass those four criteria, it's bullshit. Uh-huh. That's the four tests of a rational thought. If it doesn't pass those, then it's not a rational thought. If it fails any one of the four, mm-hmm. then it's not a rational thought. But here's thought. where it gets crazy tricky is, is it factual? You have to verify factual verifiably against some objective criteria. Not yes. just you tell yourself it's factual. Right. But I'm just saying, let's acknowledge the world we live in. So if this happens to my wife and I all the time. I'll go, you can use... This shampoo on a three-year-old, even though it says it's for adults, right? So I type in, is this thing safe for blank? And I get a thousand articles that say it is. But my wife types in, is this shampoo dangerous for babies? And she gets a thousand articles. So it, it has gotten more challenging because we can get confirmation bias much easier today than maybe ever before. It's tricky because you could, you actually can find the truth now, which you couldn't do in 1980. Yeah. What the fuck were you going to go to the library and spend two days yeah. trying to find out if and something of course was... now it's just, you have the whole library at your fingertips. Yes, but that thing you use to search information knows who you are and it steers you yeah. to get information you already want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Based on what you looked for yesterday. Yes. And it's and like it when they say, I forget the example, but it's something like if a, they did this test where if a, a liberal types in, you know, Tel Aviv in Google, they'll get all these hotels and restaurants seated in Tel Aviv. If a conservative does it, they'll get five 
terror related news <laughs> articles. Like it's just to confirm your view of the world yeah. somehow. They've figured out how to do it. Yeah, that's pretty scary, isn't it? It is. And all the more reason that you have to be. So that's why I think systems, a few other people in your circle that you check in with regularly. That's why I like AA is a lot of those guys will go like, yeah, yeah, I felt the same way. It turned out that was bullshit. Let me tell you why. And that to me is helpful because collectively, if you look at science, science is the antidote to personal confirmation diet, right? Peer review, having people read your work and go, you're kind of there, but this is wrong. Co-piloting on an airplane. There's a reason there's two people in there, right? So I just think systems are often required for us to have a good sense of what we're really experiencing. Like on Dr. Phil, the only advice that I ever give about a mental illness is what we call evidence-based therapies. If there's not something for which there's empirical evidence that this helps with OCD, depression, or anxiety, I don't talk about it. Right. If there's not, it's it's if it's not an evidence-based therapy, yes. then I don't talk about it. I may not even particularly agree with every aspect of it, but... I don't feel like I should just give my opinion. Right. Because I got millions of people. And if I don't have empirical data to support what I'm telling somebody that millions of people are watching, I don't think I have the right to just opine on shit. I just don't yes. think I should do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you have that sense of yeah. uh, responsibility. But we have an advisory but board. But that, and it's. And they really look at it hard. They do. Yeah. But your field is one of the more challenging ones to make sweeping statements but it's the least measurable organ in our body basically right it's yeah, you hard. can't show somebody an x-ray of depression right you can show an x-ray of a leg and see if it's healed up or not but you can't do it with depression do they smile more they cry less i mean wait it's yes. very subjective and i do think they are getting closer and closer as they look at brain imaging and they watch what part of your brain's working and they'll you know be able to measure certain things I think we're approaching that, which is really reassuring. Are you pro or anti any of the things that are commonly prescribed or used? Or Well, as Let far me- as medications are concerned, yeah, I-, I tend to think about medications in terms of biochemical replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. I think they're way overused. I think they're way overprescribed. I tend to think if for some reason your body has stopped manufacturing something in the brain Mm -hmm. for a period of time that it really needs and you can support that short term, then that makes sense. But to just throw antidepressants at anybody that's feeling kind of blue Mm -hmm. because they walk in is absolutely insane to me. Right. I mean, because a lot of times people come in and they're depressed. If you'll talk to them for 15 minutes, you'll find out exactly why they're depressed. They should be depressed. Right. I mean, there's shit going wrong. I mean, right. fix this. Don't just mask it with hiding it behind a pill. Yeah. Fix it. Yeah. And so I tend to... Lean towards behavioral. Yeah I, yeah, I tend to really lean towards fixing it instead of masking it. I had that opinion almost to a T until living with my wife, who is very open about being on SSRI inhibitors. And I've seen the difference. And I've also seen, so you're right, quite often. But SSRI inhibitors are almost always prescribed because the brain is not manufacturing what it needs to manufacture. That is biochemical replacement therapy. Yes. Yep. But I've got to see firsthand where, well, there isn't something to fix. 
which is dangerous and scary. There's not a problem. There isn't, you know, it's just, it, it is just a black cloud, a debilitating, and there is no real thing to address. For me, it was easy, like, oh, well, drinking, you gotta, you gotta cut that out and X, Y, and Z. But it's, it is tricky. When you look back, what made you stop when you were abusing? What finally pushed you over the line? Well, I think a lot of people have a, a notion of a bottom. That seems to be a pretty common term that people relate to. I had like 18. I mean, I had many near-death experiences. So many things I woke up and I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm still alive. But really the ultimate thing was I would get sober for movies. I was more addicted to that succeeding at that. So I could sober up for movies and I was about to start a movie. I went to Hawaii. It was just as big of a shit show as you can imagine. I'm in a car accident with some locals within 36 hours of landing and robbed by some drugs. I mean, it just, it couldn't have gone worse. By the end of the trip, I am so sick and my flight is to San Francisco. And then it from San Francisco, I go to LA. Now I am so sick when I get off the plane in San Francisco. I know I won't make this flight unless I get at least five or six Jack and diets in me. So I go to the bar and I'm next to a mirror because I'm in the corner because I'm afraid someone in AA is going to see me drinking because I had been sober for a few months. So I'm paranoid someone's going to see me and I'm drinking my Jack and diets. I feel as miserable as it gets. And corny as it is, I looked in the mirror and I felt as bad as I've ever felt in my whole life. And I was about to start a movie that I was going to make the most amount of money I ever. It was going to bring me to this magic number that I was certain would make me feel good. People were recognizing me at the airport. That was supposed to feel a certain way. And I was like, something's very, very, very broken. If you've got everything you set out to get and you are at your very lowest point. Right when you're reaching where you I wanted to die and I had everything I was supposed to get. And that was terrifying. So what'd you do? Went back to the program. Listened this time. Did you, I, I had tried it many, so many times. So you didn't times. do it inpatient? No. I had to start a movie. <laughs> yeah. But that's impressive. I mean, that's that takes guts. I had the advantage of my dad. My dad died, I think, 29 years sober. So I had I had a scene at work, and I also had uh, been educated in it quite a bit. Yeah. So is that trip what Lawyer's Guns and Money is about? Yes. How do you yeah. know about that? I, I do my homework. <laughs> I'll say. The crazy thing about that. So I wrote this movie about my last week of drinking called Send Lawyer's Guns and Money, and I'm obsessed with that Warren Zevon song. So when I was writing the script, this is almost unbelievable, but I'll tell it. And you can substantiate it by finding this YouTube video. I thought, oh, I want to learn to play this song on the guitar. I wonder if there's a video of him performing that song on YouTube so I can copy it. So I find a video on YouTube and he's about to play the song. And before he starts playing, he goes, uh, I wrote this song. I was in the middle of, uh, of writing an album and I thought, I need a vacation. I'm going to go down to Hawaii. And I went to the island of Kauai. And after two weeks of improbable danger and death-defying activity, I realized I shouldn't go on vacations. <laughs> you know, the barmaid in Havana. And I was like, what just happened? This song is about his debaucherous trip to Hawaii as well. Same island. I That blew my mind. I felt like I was really... 
Yeah, that almost made me believe in God for a second. Yeah, that was no accident. (laughs) Yeah, that felt a little suspicious. Yeah. When are you going to do the movie? I don't know. I am having so much fun doing the podcast. I'm doing three TV shows right now and directing while I love it so much. It is such a time suck. It's like two years of your life. And then your life then is judged on a weekend. The stakes are so high. And I just don't know that I have the appetite now, which is not to say that I won't regain it. You've done like seven directorial things, right? Where major projects. Yeah, I've done three feature movies, a few TV shows, and a bazillion shorts and stuff. And again, that control thing we talked about with the cars very much appeals to me to be able to make every single decision. <laughs> it's an egomaniac's yeah. Yeah, nirvana. You said, I asked you what your currency was now, and I was really interested in what you're doing with this Hollenbeck Youth Center thing. Mm-hmm. You spend a lot of time there, right? A lot of energy. I have spent in the past a lot of energy there. I'd say currently over the last couple of years, I really, my stepdad died of prostate cancer four months ago. Oh, sorry. And I started working with the Prostate Cancer Foundation about a year and a half ago. So I, I spent a lot of time doing that. Also, my mom's a CASA. Do you know what a CASA is? It's a court-appointed advocate for kids in foster care. So I try to raise money for that. And then my wife inevitably ropes me into about 26 other charities I know very little about, but I'm willing to participate. She's in charge of making me a better human being. Are you a CASA? I'm not. No, I don't have the time. Yeah. Robin and I are national spokespersons for CASA. I just learned that yesterday, actually, from Jay, now that you say it. It's a great, it's an amazing program. We've raised about $100 million for them in money money and volunteer services. And I think it's one of the greatest things in the world because those kids go through the court system and the research is real clear. One of the most outcome determinative things in their lives is just having an adult put their arm around their shoulder and walk them through the maze. Yeah. As opposed to any other thing, just having somebody because, you know, social workers have 80 files on their desk and they do the best they can, but they're just overworked and understaffed. But Acasa has like two kids a year. Yeah. And that's it. So they get all. Yeah. My mom's at every court date with them. She's at the doctor appointments. She's at the supervised visitation. So, yeah, she's the face. Now, every time they get into a new scary situation, uh, like I just dropped my daughter off Monday for the first day of kindergarten. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's over. She did great. She did great. She like took two steps in. She's like, all right, dad. But leading up to it, she had a lot of anxiety. She woke up the night before pretty panicked about it. Yeah. When you think about it, it's overwhelming for all of us. And that's the one thing everyone can relate to, like taking your kid to kindergarten for the first time. All parents can relate to that. Well, kid in foster care, they do that three times a week. They go to a different courthouse. Then they go to this other facility that is equally as scary and overwhelming. Yeah. It's just emotional trauma after emotional trauma, after, you know. So, yeah, to have uh, like a, a, a fairy godmother who's joining you is is pretty oh. impactful. So you took her to school? Yeah. Both of you Both take of her? Us. To- yeah, yeah. And yeah. my mom, she came. And she was okay just walking in? She was, yeah. That's great. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. I mean, again, I knew that was going to happen. Like, I just, again, I have unlimited optimism about them. Yeah. And my wife was a little bit like, you know, it's going to be hard. I'm like, I know we're going to get there and she's going to. So you said when you first met Kristen, 
you thought she was so happy she must be in a cult or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is I was she very suspicious of her. Is she that happy? It wasn't that I thought she was so happy as much as she was so trusting of everybody. She, I mean, the, the best way I can sum it up is when she and I meet a, a, a stranger on the street, a man, I go, this motherfucker's going to try to take my wallet, be on guard. And she genuinely thinks this guy might cure cancer. Yeah. That is our worldviews. And we've somehow linked up. Well, it kind of averages out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the middle. That's what I say about she drives a fully electric car and I drive a 67 Lincoln. So we're doing well, yeah. uh, the average. But yeah, she, when I met her, she had like, I don't know, six roommates living at her house for free. And I'm like, oh my, you're getting taken advantage of. These people are taking advantage of you. But then I would go home to my empty house where no one was taking advantage of me. And you were alone. And I'm alone. There's no joy. There's no memories. There's no photos. There's no nothing. Yeah. That's me protecting myself. That's right. And I, what an opportunity for me to just look at someone and go, well, let's look at the results of her life and not the theory leading to the results. Because I could tear the theory apart nine ways to Sunday. Well, you said you guys do couples counseling, right? Yes. We certainly did a lot when we were newly. Well, that's what dating. I mean. Yes. Did you do some- it before you got married? You did oh, pre-marital yeah, yeah. counseling? We started couples counseling maybe three months into dating. See, that is so, I try to get people to do that so much so they work out the issues before they fill out the paperwork. Yes. Because then you can talk about things like expectations, about geography, money, in-laws, religion, everything. You find out, work it out before you go take the It's the ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure thought. And then I had by just weird coincidence read a book right before we met, a Malcolm Gladwell book. About this guy, I'm sure you know of him. He he is he has recorded couples talking for 35 years. And he can watch the tape and predict with 96% accuracy whether they'll get divorced within an hour, right? But he can watch 15 minutes of it and he can predict 87%. But he can watch five minutes of people talking and still in the 80% predict whether they'll get divorced or not. And it's all for him, at least, if you believe him, I do. It's all contempt. He can see contempt immediately because I was with the girl for a really long time and I love her wildly. I still friends with her. She's a wonderful person. And I think I need I can't just expect this to work out on its own. I need to avoid contempt like that became my North Star. I will not have contempt for this woman. I will not say she's blank. I'll just say she's today. She's acting whatever. She's not permanently one of these things. And so. The couples therapy was really necessary for us to veer away from contempt. Do you still do it? We haven't been in a long time. But we, you feel like you learned what you needed to? Yes. I think we, because we've been together 11 years now. I'd say the first seven we had help. And I think even if we have a bad 36 hours, we come back to the rules we know we have to abide by. You know, we'll, we'll have the final conversation where neither of us are, are, are defending ourselves anymore. And we'll just go, okay, well, Here's what I'm willing to meet you. You know, this I recognize that's a need I'm not meeting. We, we can get there, which is not to say we probably don't need a tune-up. We have two kids now. Well, <laughs> it, no, but if you're thinking about it a lot, that is a tune-up. If you actually give time and attention and think through it and remind yourself of the things, that's yeah. good. I mean, we were married 42 years last weekend was our anniversary for 42 years. Wow. That's a long time, but it's like 
relationships are negotiations and the negotiation never ends. No. I mean, because you evolve and she evolves. And so you just keep negotiating because you, your needs change, your yeah. wants change. Yeah. What you have to offer changes. The demands of your life changes. When the kids get older, your roles change. I mean, everything changes. Yes. And I look at it the same way. I now use my exercise analogy for everything in my life, which is I'm never going to do one magic set of bench press. My chest is going to look great for the rest of my life. It has to happen daily. There's no one and done. My mental health's that way. My diet's that way. My body's that way. Of course, my marriage is that way. My relationship with my kids is that way. I'm not going to say the one perfect thing to my kids and they're going to act well for the rest of their life. No. and It's frustrating. And by the way, take it from me, you never get through parenting. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, checkout time can be 18, uh-huh. but you just start parenting from a distance. Uh-huh. You always, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. You're a parent till you die. Yeah. I mean, there's always something. Well, I only know one of your kids and I'm shocked with how much reverie he has for you and yeah. how much he actually likes you and appreciates your point of view. Yeah. So I, I've been whatever things blessed. you've done wrong, that's pretty well, I've been Incredible. very blessed with both. I, I get to see both of my boys on a really regular basis. Yeah. And they're seven years apart. Yeah. And which is a big gap, you know, yes. for, for, with two kids. They're seven They're both years kind apart. of first only yeah. child. Exactly. Them, right? And they're thick as thieves and different as daylight and dark. And uh-huh. I get to see them both every day. You know, Jay's Mr. Buttoned Up and, you know, hard driving. Industrious. His brother's a musician and mm-hmm. you've know, got more tattoos than sense. He's insanely talented and just really blowing up as a musician and really good. There's a couple things I'm curious about you. Well, first of all, it doesn't sound like your dad passed on a bunch of great parenting tools to you. No. A couple things I'm curious because in a much smaller capacity, I, I, I occupy a similar role that you do in my sphere, which is been sober 14 years. I know a good amount of stuff about keeping your mental health well. I often am someone people ask the advice for, which I love. It's what gives me probably the most self-esteem. And yet there's this huge danger of me hanging my hat on that as self-esteem because I can no longer show you my faults and my flaws and my failings because I want to maintain this role because I like it so much and it gives me such self-esteem. When I was thinking about you, I was thinking, it can be a dangerous path to be the man with all the answers, isn't it? Well, I don't know, because I'm not the man with all the answers. Okay, well, you've made a life of having, yeah, out of having a lot of the answers. Yeah, I've given advice, but I can tell you, like, for example, in my private life, if there's just a bunch of us hanging out and somebody's saying, well, so-and-so's getting divorced or this is having trouble, everybody has an, an opinion. Yeah. I'm the last guy to give an opinion. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like on Dr. Phil. We don't like stop cars on Melrose and say, hey, is your life fucked up? You know, come <laughs> we don't do that. I talk to people who write in and ask for help. Right. And the average person writes in probably 25 times before they ever actually get there. Yeah. So I'm like really reluctant to offer advice, yeah. particularly in my private life, because I don't want to be responsible for the outcome. Uh-huh. And yeah, free advice. Yeah, it's you get not what you pay a for. science. It's not like no, no, it, jack know, the car up with a two and a half ton jack. It's going to yeah, work every yeah, time. Generally, when people ask you what they should do, they've already made up their mind. They're looking for somebody to agree with them to confirm. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like 
you know, what, what do you really want to know? Yeah. You really want to know how to do what it is you're going to do? Or what are you, what are you asking me? Cause yeah. you're really not asking me what to do. But, but you're a human male on planet earth. You have to be as far, flawed. As, far as you know. Well, I haven't inspected anything, <laughs> but my assumption is <clears throat> you're male. You've met my kids. I've met your children. But you're a human. You're a fallible human. You have character defects. Do you think it's easy for you to be vulnerable and open about your faults and flaws? Or do you feel like there's a, a, a professional risk to doing that? You miss what I said a minute ago. I've been married 42 years. <laughs> i real. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm real easy to uh, get in touch with my flaws. Okay. My, well, you have flaws. a part, you have a co-pilot that's yeah, pointing them out for yeah, you. Yeah, she keeps me. Uh, <laughs> uh, when your wife says what, isn't it? She didn't hear you. Uh-huh. <laughs> She's giving you a chance to clean up what you just said, <laughs> clean this up and change it. No, I've really made an effort, even on the air, to say I'm not holding myself up as a paragon of mental health or whatever, because I guarantee you I work too much. I mean, Robin, she'll tell me all the time, something like big will happen. Like we'll achieve something, some great thing will happen or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she'll say, come on, give me something. Give me a happy dance here. Give me, uh-huh. give me, you know, break out in a smile. Give me something or whatever. And the truth is I'm very happy most of the time, it's just, I'm just not a woo uh-huh. kind of happy guy. I mean, right. to me, I, I'll be like really happy and content inside, but I don't like run around the house and sure. you know, my hands. Are, but it drives her crazy that I'm not more emotionally expressive. But you get very Does she think you have a lack of gratitude? No, she has a, thinks I have a lack of expression. Okay. She knows that I am very grateful mm-hmm. Like for our kids being healthy and for, yeah, I've always said you're only as happy as your saddest child. Yeah. And my kids are really happy. And so I'm like delirious. I mean, yeah. And so she just thinks I'm not expressive. And I go on vacation and after like 36 hours, I'm like, oh, fuck, what? Like, yeah. Like, let me go dig a hole or something. I, yeah. Because I've. But well, what's when, that about? Well, you know, when you've been poor. Yeah. And sounds like you have the same. Well, and, it, and you know, you can tell when somebody's really been poor because people say they've been poor and they say, you know, you don't work, you don't eat. Mm-hmm. That person hasn't really been poor, poor because uh-huh. you've been really poor, poor. Then they'll tell you if you don't work and get paid today, uh-huh. you don't eat. I mean, that's being poor is when, you know, I can't take this job if it doesn't pay me at the end of the day. Right. So I got to keep looking. <laughs> yeah. I, can I clean your storeroom out today? And if I do, do I get paid at the end of the day? Because I haven't eaten since the day before yesterday. Yeah. I mean, that's where I've been. Uh-huh. So I just always feel like but, but I really need quick, to be productive. But the four that you just illuminated for me. Right. Factually, you're not going to be poor. No, I can't spend. No, I'm, you're done. Yeah. You did. Well, well, you need to be my wife. That could come <laughs> Okay, but I, I have a hunch you could figure it out. Yeah. Right. So factually, there's just there's no true need for you to generate anything. And yet you're compelled to. So do you think there's a, per, a certain part of your identity that I'm this man, I generate, that's who I am, and, and I'm going to keep doing it? Well, all right. You open this can, so let's eat the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I go through steps. I've been a pilot since I was like 17. Okay. I mean, I've flown a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I've got 
thousands of hours as a pilot, mm. which the way you get lots of hours is you fly really slow airplanes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've <laughs> some really shitty airplanes uh-huh. over the life. <laughs> I used to say, okay, I'll know that I've arrived if I could ever have a Learjet and afford to fly it anywhere I ever wanted and not worry about it. Mm-hmm. Not worry about the fuel bills. I would, yeah. That's my watermark. That's my objective. If I could ever get to that point, then I'm done. Right. I mean, I've arrived. Yeah. Because everybody has a number. I mean, do you have a number in your mind? Like, yeah. You know, the magic number. This yep. is the fuck you money number. Yeah. If I get there, fuck you. Yeah. So I had that fiction for a while. Yeah. And then that blew by that yep. a long time ago. And he mm-hmm. said, so what do you, why now? Yeah. Well, now I've got two kids. Right. So you say, well, you know, you want to work for your kids. Sure. And now both of my kids are making crazy money right. on their own. I mean, right. they're both very successful, thank God. So you can't justify it with that. Yeah, yeah. Because uh-huh. that's what I used to say. You know, you want to yeah. leave your kids where you don't, your grandkids at all don't have to worry. Right. So I keep asking myself. Why, You're running out of reasons. Yeah, why am I doing this? <laughs> and then I realize that a lot of my self-worth is tied up in being good at something. Yeah. It's not that I define myself by what I do, but a lot of my self-worth is tied up in doing something and doing it well. Yeah. And we do 175 originals a year on our show. And still, I get a 250-page book for every show. And I read every word of that book every night. Mm -hmm. And I do two shows a day. So that's 500 pages. And I study those. Like you said, you know, how do you know about this movie? But because yeah. I do my homework. I feel like if, if you're going to go to the trouble to leave your house and come over here and sit down and talk to me, mm-hmm. I owe it to you to prepare and, and know what's going on. If people are sitting in Dayton, Ohio, and they're going to get on an airplane and fly down here and put it out in front of the world and talk to me about it, I feel like I need to have done my homework about them. I need to have, if it's like OCD or whatever, I, I'm going to talk to the top OCD experts in the world. I feel like I need to do it well. And I feel good about myself when I do that. I think I've made a difference. Right now, one of my goals is I want to advance the narrative of mental illness in America. I want to advance it to the forefront of the narrative where the stigma is gone and people can talk about it. So to me, that's kind of a mission. Yeah. And so I do it. That's the currency for me. Right. And if you make money doing it, that's okay. Whatever they want. I just think they should know why they're doing it. Right. Yeah. And I, a long time ago, quit telling myself I was doing it because I needed to make money. And you know what? Mm-hmm. I felt better about it after that. Because mm-hmm. you know, people can say, oh, you just do that for a ratings grab. Fuck you. I'm going to make a thousand episodes of television this year with all the different shows we do. Right. What rating one show gets on one day for somebody? Uh, yeah. This is making a difference to me. All the ads are sold before the year starts anyway. I don't give a shit. What Did you, you watch Breaking Bad? Uh-huh. My favorite moment of the whole series, spoiler alert, at the end, he says, I did it for me. And I was like, oh, they did. Do uh, you remember yeah. that? Like, because yeah. he had been telling himself, I'm doing it for my kid who's going to need a lot of money because he's disabled and I'm dying and I'm doing it for my wife. I'm doing it. And the fact that he finally said I was doing it for me, I just thought was. That was, I had two favorite moments in that whole series and that was one of them yeah wasn't that incredible yeah that's not what you see on tv that's what made that show so great is that you know what the other one was Mm -hmm. he was talking to his wife 
And she said, I'm so scared. We're in danger. And he said, honey, I am the danger. <laughs> yeah. That's when I knew he had owned it. Uh-huh. He had owned it. He wasn't a biology teacher. <laughs> right, right. He said, honey, I am the danger. <laughs> Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the same thing of him saying, I'm doing this for me. Yeah. That that was the best written line I think I've ever heard. Yeah. Because I was watching it going, I'd like to be an outlaw. That part looks fun. Like yeah. that appeals to me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a euphoria that comes with breaking all the rules. And, and yeah. yeah. I wonder, you know, you say you've been married 11 years. I wonder your first 10 years compared to my first 10 years. I mean, they're 40 years apart, 30 years apart. I wonder, it's really different being married in this day and time. I look on the internet, there's pictures of you as a couple. You guys can't walk out to the curb without somebody being all over you. And it's the same way with us now, but we've been married so long, it doesn't affect us. Does that put pressure on you guys? That as the part that puts pressure on me is... We have been celebrated for being a couple in love. And my history says I fuck things up. So my fear is like, whoa, don't elevate me. I'm a human. I could blow this whole thing up. That part, I have a hard time accepting. Praise isn't the right word, although I don't love that either. But I have a hard time taking on being aspirational to somebody because I know how what a scumbag I am and how flawed I am. So I, I, that just scares me. Even if everything's going honky-dory, I'm a real human being living in the real world. That could go for her. She could be on a film set someday. I've been an asshole to her for six months or kids or whatever. She has makeout scenes. Something could happen. I'm prepared for that. So that gives me anxiety of like, I hope we're inspirational for the right reason, which is we're, we own our flaws to each other and we talk about the hard stuff. Now, me bringing a sloth to the birthday party and the joyous, you know, the curated thing, those moments exist. It took a lot of ugliness to get to those moments. My big fear is that people will think, oh, I just need to find my Kristen Bell or find my Dak Shepard because that's not what happened to us. We, I mean, we barely made it to year two. It's gotten progressively easier, but it was a fight. All of it felt wrong. I was like, I can't be married to a person like this. She believes that uh, Jesus is the son and the father and all these things. She'll want to raise our kids that way. You know, just who cares? I don't have any disrespect for people that think that, but I didn't think I wanted to raise kids with someone like that. All these things at the beginning. So, yeah, my fear would be that we're selling something that we're not or that people think we're something we're not. All right. Well, let me ask this final topic then, because people have got to know this. Okay. Just in your opinion, how have you made it 11 years? What's been, I know it's not one thing and it obviously is a lot of elbow grease in it, but you said it was so hard in the beginning. How have you made it this far? Well, A, therapy. I give AA a ton of credit because it has taught me how to recognize my own stuff in interpersonal relationships. So almost as a rule of thumb now, like we argue about all the stuff people argue about. Like she doesn't shut cabinets. I don't know why. If I want to get an aspirin out of her medicine cabinet, when I grab it, the top's off. She doesn't put tops on things. You know, just stupid stuff I can't comprehend how she moves through this world. We'll bicker about that stuff. But if we start disagreeing about something and I feel my breathing change and I feel my blood pressure change, I now know, but again, only through a ton of practice, I go, ooh, something's going on. That's my fear right now. I'm 
terrified about something, even if it doesn't feel like it on the surface, I just know now I I'm really aware of my own physiology when we talk. And generally speaking, I'll say, I'd love to time out this if you're fine with that. I'm going to go spend 10 or 15 minutes and just think about what maybe what fear of mine's being triggered. Because I'd rather come into this situation and go, when you say you want to take this job, my fear is I'm going to be second to this thing. Like I was second to my mom's career and second to this. I'd rather start there because then she can she can help me. But if I try to prove to her she's working too much or she's this too much, we'll just fight about the logistics of that or who's right or wrong. And it will never get towards making me feel safe. So I guess, yeah, my number one thing is like, just put in the time to figure, because I'm not going to change her. I'm not going to change her. I can only change my reaction to her. Hopefully she'll do some changing. And she has done tons of changing over 11 years because I picked a good person. She is innately a really wonderful human being. But I just have to have faith she's going to do that stuff on her own. I can't make her shut cabinets. I've got to eventually get not pissed off about seeing open up cabinets. That's the only solution for me to not walk around angry all the time. I have to change me. I'm the only variable in every single equation that I can change. But you know what you figured out? Maybe you haven't thought about it in these terms, but People typically fight about topics because they're afraid of the issues. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll fight about like the logistics of a job because they're afraid to label the issue of feeling second. Mm-hmm. So they'll fight about the topic because they're scared to talk about the issue because the issue, it might turn out that, yeah, this job is more important to me than you. And like, oh, shit, I didn't want to hear that. So <laughs> right. I, let's go back and fight about the topic again. Uh, yes. And so people don't want to talk about that. They'll fight about the tricycle being left in the driveway because they don't want to say, why haven't we had sex in six weeks? Yeah. Because they don't want to hear her say, because I'm just not attracted to you anymore. Yeah. They don't, they don't, want, to talk, they don't want to face the issues, so they'll hide behind the topic. And what you're saying is you take time to go figure out what the issue is and then come back and talk about the issue. Yeah. That's a big deal. Again, I learned it in, I learned it in the program. And I, I had the advantage of having a disease that was life threatening. I couldn't have changed unless literally I was going to die. I just, my head has to be on fire for me to change. That's when people change, right? Yeah. When it's life or death or they're going to lose the most important thing to them. I've got this chart I use of these four stages of readiness. Authority tells you to do it like court-ordered anger management. You know, nobody's going to change then. Yeah. Or you intellectually just know you need to or you're doing it to please somebody else. But the fourth stage is when you change because you're not going to take this shit from yourself anymore for another second of another minute of another hour. And whatever's on the other side is not near as scary, painful as what you're feeling right now. So fuck it. I'm changing. I'm not taking this shit anymore. That's when people change. Yeah. And sadly, you have to be pretty miserable on that starting stage to think what's on the other side's work. But when you do, you do. Yeah. I mean, it's good. But again, like the working out, it doesn't end. There's more now. No, it's managed, not cured. Well, so are you going to uh, let me be on your podcast sometime? Oh, my God. I'd love to have you. I I drill down deeper into your character defects. Yeah, I mean, who who knows? Maybe I'll talk to your wife as research before. Yeah, you you can do background with her and then talk to me. I'd love to do it sometime. Seriously, anytime. Anytime you'll have me, I'll be there. Yeah, I'm glad I was on yours. All right, thanks, man. Absolutely. Find fill in the blanks in your podcast app. Then subscribe so you don't miss an episode.